Neil Before Blog presents Neil Before Pod. Hello and welcome to the Neil Before Pod interview segment. I'm your host Craig and I'm bringing you one from the archives. Some of my interviews were believed lost in a great hard drive fire, but it looks like I'm better at backing things up than I thought I was. I hope you enjoy this chat I had with Chris Doc Wyatt, a writer and producer on many animated shows including Stretch Armstrong and the Flex Fighters, Ultimate Spider-Man, Marvel Spider-Man, Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes, Avengers Assemble, and many, many other things. Some elements of it are out of date. For example, his graphic novel is long out, but the bulk of the content remains valid. So I'm delighted to be joined on Neil Before Pod with Chris Doc Wyatt. Hi, how are you doing? I'm great. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Thanks for reaching out. It's unusual to have a guest reach out and beg to be interviewed, so that's a new one. (laughs) Well, you'd reached out like a year or so ago, and it was all my fault that we never connected, so I'm glad we finally have. Yeah, it's just one of those things. Life happens, things happen, it's all good. Absolutely. So my first question for you is the sort of middle name that you write with, Doc, is that your actual middle name or is it kind of a nickname you've appropriated over the years? No, it was a nickname from grad school. What happened was I got that nickname for being a little bit of a know-it-all in grad school and sort of stuck with me. And so people just used it. I mean, that was just the name I went by. But when I was making my first movie when as a producer, I was getting my early IMDb credits and I noticed that I was Chris Wyatt 7 on IMDb. There were already six other Chris Wyatt filmmakers. And uh, at the time, there's a company called Blockbuster Video, where you rented actual DVDs from a store. And uh, the CEO of that company was named Chris Wyatt. There was a guy who had created a YouTube for religious people called GodTube. And that guy was named Chris Wyatt. And so there were a lot of media (laughs) figures named Chris Wyatt. And as I was gathering credits on IMDb, I didn't want to cross over. There's actually great British editor named Chris Wyatt, who cut This Is England and a bunch of other wonderful movies. And every once in a while, I'll get an email directed toward him asking if I'll edit an independent film. And I have to apologize and explain I'm the wrong Chris Wyatt and that I don't even know that Chris Wyatt or how to get in touch with him. So I adopted my grad school nickname as a way to distinguish my credits from all the other Chris Wyatts. There's a Chris Wyatt actually at Riot Games in Santa Monica. And every once in a while, friends of his will email me by mistake. (laughs) Should just be like, yeah, I'll give it a go. Send it on. I'll see how I get on. Yeah, sure. Depends on what they want. If they're gathering bills, then I'll send them to the right (laughs) kids quiet. But if they're making payments, I'll see if I can take those checks. Yeah. Oh, I don't know how I got your money. Sorry about that. Oh, what a mistake. Yeah. (laughs) That's cool. So... You've been doing writing and producing for a long time. So how did you get into that? What was your start and where is it you like to put your energies most? Is it producing? Is it writing? Is it a mix of the two? Well, I got my start. I went to film school and I got a graduate degree in in motion picture producing from the University of Southern California here in Los Angeles, the Trojans fight on. And so after grad school, I was a terrible employee. I just had a rough time caring about what my bosses wanted me to care about. And I only (laughs) cared about the things that 
I wanted to hear about. So I just started trying to make my own productions, make my own movies. And fortunately, I hooked up with a great producing partner, a guy named Sean Covell, and uh, we hooked up with a great writer-director. And uh, the first movie we made with money that we raised through uh, equity, meaning just rich people investing in movies, was Napoleon Dynamite. And the movie was a hit, and then that opened a lot of doors. And so I got to make other movies and then eventually moved over to children's television, where I've been for many years. Cool. And is it the writing side of it appeals to you the most, or do you like to kind of have a bit of the producing in there as well? Well, I, storytelling generally is what I enjoy, and it starts with the writing. Producing is the process of carrying, at least in animation, producing is the process of carrying the story from the page through to the eyeballs of the audience members. So I very much appreciate getting to the point where I'm producing the scripts that my partner Kevin and I write, because it means we're able to care for the stories as they leave the page and as they develop. Because when you, starting out in animation, we were writing a lot of freelance scripts, Kevin and I, and once you turn in your final draft of that script, you don't see it again until it airs, usually a year and a half, two years later. And things have changed necessarily. Uh, directors have interpreted things and producers have interpreted things and uh, story editors have edited things. And so you don't sort of necessarily know how much of the story you were telling translated to the screen. Yeah. But becoming producers and executive producers on our shows... Kevin and I always know how things are changing and we're the ones making the decisions about the changes and we get to guide that story to the screen. And so that's really a wonderful thing to be able to do. And when you're not working, what do you like to watch or read or kind of just do in your own time when you're not writing scripts or things? Well, I'm a fanboy. I'm a big fanboy, which is why I got into this sort of a section of the business. So I read a lot of comics. I read a lot of science fiction. I like audiobooks about history, ancient civilizations. I go to movies all the time. I'm actually a member of the Friends of the LA Opera and cool. go to the opera sometimes. I just love arts generally. Cool. Just anything you can get your hands on by these kinds of things. Yeah. I mean, I feel like a story well told is just the point. Like, I don't really believe in the difference between high art and low art, like you go to the opera and I think you actually identify a lot of the same themes and a lot of the archetypes that you find when you read DC Comics. I mean, mm -hmm. the division, I think, between the popular arts and the high arts is something that doesn't exist from a content perspective. It's just stories. And I like stories in every form I can get them in. Yeah, there's got to be as many bad operas as there are good operas, if you know the yeah. the material, I'm guessing. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's, and the same as video games. I mean, for me, yeah. I've never written video games, but I enjoy playing them because at their best, they're just interactive storytelling, where you become sort of a co-conspirator along with the storytellers as you move through the story, which I love. Is video games something you'd like to take a crack at one of these days? I would love to. I'm not in any way going in that direction right now in my career, but were that opportunity to come up at some point, I'd love it. Cool. Well, hopefully you'll get the chance one of these days. Knock on wood.
so the first thing I want to ask about that you've written about or written for is that Iron Man series, Armored Adventures. I've only seen a couple of episodes of it, but the concept seems interesting. Sort of Tony Stark as a teenager becoming Iron Man. It's a very different take on the character than we've seen pretty much anywhere else. So what was it like for you to kind of stick your toe in that and write that different version? Did you find it difficult at all or was it easy enough to just dial into who he is fundamentally? Well, it was easy for us, for Kevin and I, uh, my writing partner and I, because of the showrunner of that show. It was a guy named Chris Yost, and he's gone on to write movies for the Marvel Cinematic Universe and also comics for Marvel and everything else. But he really masterfully put the show together because the idea of Tony Stark as a little kid could also be annoying and stupid. I mean, it's easy that that concept could have gone a different direction and a much sort of sillier and, and less interesting direction. And Chris didn't let it go that way. Like the idea of taking all the sort of pressure and everything that we know about Tony and about losing his parents and about his sort of obsessive personality that can lead to alcoholism and other things and compressing that down into someone who's still going to high school just took it in this really interesting and complicated direction and and laid the path for us. So we just freelanced on that show and we just followed Chris's lead. And so we found it easy to do. But if it hadn't been for Chris or if we had been in Chris's shoes, I think it could have been an incredibly difficult show to just pull off just from a tone perspective. Yeah, because everyone's so used to him as being one of the older characters that they might come across and to see him as a teenager, but still Iron Man must have been a hard concept to sell, I guess. Uh, Well, you know, in a way, because this was all happening before the first Robert Downey Jr. movie came out. And so Iron Man wasn't in the popular consciousness in any way. In fact, my brother-in-law, who isn't into comics, asked me after the first Robert Downey Jr. movie came out. But he's like an original character to movies, right? Like he thought (laughs) there had been no comic book of Iron Man ever. And so I don't think everyone was as completely off the page of Iron Man as my brother-in-law, but just as a way of showing that there was a lot less pressure on that show mm-hmm. because it wasn't following Robert Downey Jr. It was, in a way, setting it up. So the idea of a teenage Tony Stark, which would be crazy to viewers of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, wasn't that crazy before the first Iron Man movie came out, just because people knew that character less. And people knew Spider-Man very well, and he's often interpreted as a high school hero. So mm-hmm. just saying like a Spider-Man take on Iron Man was sort of an easy sell for a lot of folks. Fair enough. Well, one of these days I'll get back to having a proper look at it. It's just so much to watch, so little time. Oh, I hear you. worked on two different Avengers animated shows, and they couldn't be more different in terms of the prevailing tone and their focus and things like that. So writing for two different versions of the same team, what was that like? How did you change your approach when it came to Assemble versus Earth's Mightiest Heroes? Well, Earth's Mightiest Heroes was much more comic book oriented. Chris Yost, the same showrunner that I was talking about, also developed Earth's Mightiest Heroes. And his pitch for the Avengers was this. Our Avengers show is going to be the Avengers. The Avengers you know and love, the stories you remember as your favorite stories, that's our show. That's Earth's Mightiest Heroes. And that was his whole pitch, was we're going to do the Avengers. And I found it very appealing. We were writing versions of stories that we read. Kevin and I have been collecting since most of these stories were fresh on shelves. And so it was delightful. Avengers Assemble was definitely completely different. Like, Avengers Assemble happened after 
Disney had acquired Marvel because Earth's Mightiest Heroes came out after Disney acquired Marvel, but it had been developed before Disney had acquired Marvel. So we were all sort of working at Marvel before Disney bought it. And Mm. after Disney bought it, it was a different experience. We were writing Avengers Assemble as the movies were coming out, and there was very much a conscious thought of trying to make these characters in our series be characters that people who only know the Avengers from the movies would be able to recognize. That version of Hawkeye from the movies being our Hawkeye, like being able to sort of pick up on that. And also we were developing it explicitly for Disney XD, and there was a real conscious effort to make it accessible to new audiences and younger audiences in a way that Earth's Mightiest Heroes often appealed to fans who've already read the books as opposed to the movies. So it definitely had different tone and a different audience in mind. But I have to say, I loved writing both those shows and I love having written two versions, you know, two versions of Hulk, two versions of Cap, because it's wonderful to explore those characters and different directions for those characters. And I'm proud of both of those shows. I will say that I really miss Earth's Mightiest Heroes. I was super into that when it was on. It's one of those sadly cancelled before its time sort of shows for me along the lines of Spectacular Spider-Man. I would have loved to see those two continue. No, I would have too. I haven't seen that much of Assemble and what you said about it shooting for a younger audience. I couldn't ever imagine the Hulk and Hawkeye arguing over cookies in the MCU, for example. But, exactly. Yeah. But I can <laughs> exactly. see what the approach was and what the target was. Did you have much influence in kind of shaping how the show came about and ultimately where it went? I mean, I see they do a version of the Infinity Gauntlet later on and stuff in that show, which... I've not got to. Yeah, that was our season. Our connection with that show is this. A great collective of writers and producers called Man of Action, which are four guys uh, who work under the banner Man of Action. They developed that show and they ran the first season of that show and they hired us as freelancers and we contributed a couple of scripts to that first season. But then they were departing the show because of other work obligations. And they sort of kindly recommended that Kevin and I step in to run the second season of that. And so the season you referred to, the one that had Infinity Gauntlet stories, that was us. That was our season. Mm -hmm. And we ran that second season. We had a great time with it. Man of Action stayed on. They sort of stepped back as the actual story editors, and they took a step back, but they stayed on as sort of advisors. It was our first time running a story room. And so they sort of did us the favor of backing us up so that Marvel was less concerned about hiring us to run the writer's room because Man of Action said, look, we'll be there to advise and be there to support them, which was really cool. And then that's how we sort of made our leap from freelancing to head writing. So we got to sort of create the stories for the second season. And then we left after the second season to work on something different. So we didn't wind up being involved in the subsequent seasons. Cool. And Ultimate Spider-Man was kicking about at that point as well. It seems that there was a conscious decision to join up the animated shows at that point, not like directly, but you can see that Ultimate Spider-Man has connections to um, Assemble in terms of just how it's set up. Although it does have a very particular style of humour with its Family Guy style cutaway gags. So you talk a bit about working on Ultimate Spider-Man in, in terms of 
what the thinking behind that was, because it was quite a departure from everything that had come before Spider-Man-wise animation. Yeah, well, Spectacular was, as you mentioned, sort of very beloved show by fans and especially older fans. And Ultimate Spider-Man happened after Sony reverted the... TV animation rights to Marvel. And uh, I, again, was not involved with the first season of that show. It was developed by Paul Dini and by Man of Action, and Jeff Loeb headed the department at that point. But my understanding is, again, they made a conscious decision to sort of go in a different direction than Spectacular, because Spectacular had been done. They weren't Sony. Sony made Spectacular, and they weren't going to be doing the third season of the Sony show. So there was a very conscious decision to go with the younger audience. I mean, the way it was explained to me is that when I was a kid in the 80s, comic books were kind of for kids. They were kind of for people my age, like 10-year-olds were in the comic book store all the time buying the new comics. And during the 80s, comics sort of grew up. And they've sort of grown up with my generation to the point that when I go in the comic book store, I rarely see people younger than me. And I'm in my 40s. Like they just 10 year olds aren't reading comics the way that 10 year olds read comics when I was a 10 year old. And so how do you introduce these characters and these worlds and these concepts to kids who aren't reading comics? books anymore just because comics aren't written for them anymore and the idea was that the marvel animation series would be the gateway would be the way that kids can first learn about the heroes and learn their names learn their powers learn their character traits and who they are and what they want and so the show took a lot of knocks for that like uh, there were a lot of spectacular fans who just were sad they weren't getting more spectacular which i totally understand and identify with as a fan of Greg Weissman and a fan of Spectacular. And they sort of took it out on Ultimate and said, well, this is for babies and whatever else. Uh, it's silly and it's dumb. And it's there were had a lot of criticism. But Ultimate just sort of stayed on the train and just did what it wanted to do. And I've met kids that absolutely loved it. They had a Spider-Man show for them. So I think ultimately it did what it set out to do. Yeah, I always liked Ultimate. I thought it was funny. I thought it was very unique. And I mean, as much as I would have wanted another season of Spectacular or another maybe five seasons of Spectacular or more, <laughs> you know, but I, I got some enjoyment out of it. And I think it's interesting because it seems to grow up as the seasons go on, almost along with the audience that might be watching it. It does. And I think that's true, really, of a lot of animated series, it, it, unless they're a preschool like actual preschool shows, that they sort of by necessity have to start to grow up as they get more and more seasons, just because it's just the way of things. Like if you want the character to not have forgotten everything they learned in the first season, then the character has to be maturing. Otherwise, the characters are learning the same lessons over and over again in the same patterns, and you're making the same show. Ultimate Spider-Man ended after four seasons. I think if it had been six or eight seasons, he'd be a full adult, and it would just be an adult show. Yeah. So, yeah, I think a lot of like Y7 and Y11 shows tend to the characters get more sophisticated and more mature as they go because they've learned from all those episodes that you've written before then. I think it's certainly true of Turtles. Kevin and I had the good pleasure of working on the 2012 Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles show. And by the final season of that, it was a very dark, very mature, very reflective 
show. And I think partially there's a conscious effort on the part of those showrunners, but also partially that's where complicated storytelling leads to maturing. Yeah, and every generation has their turtles as well. So it's something that exists to run for a little while and then reboot, isn't it, almost? Yeah, it's definitely true. Yeah. And so when it came to Ultimate Spider-Man, you wrote technically the second animated version of Spider-Verse. Because in the 90s, it wasn't called Spider-Verse, but it was Spider-Verse. And if I'm not mistaken, the first depiction of Spider-Ham. So are you proud that that idea was kind of developed into the movie that we got recently? Yeah, I couldn't tell you for sure that the filmmakers took anything from our episodes because we did a lot with what Dan Slott was doing in the comics. But if we had any kind of influence creatively on that on that film, then I'm extremely proud of that because I just thought it was such a fantastic film and they just did such an amazing job that if any of our DNA is in there, then I'm very thankful for it. But I don't know if it is. I mean, you would certainly be early on that train of multiverses and how popular they seem to be becoming. Uh, yeah, we got to write the first Miles Morales outside of comics. We're the first ones to write the character of Miles Morales, except for it, his creator, Brian Michael Bendis. Yeah, and dream voice casting for him as well. That's right, yeah. <laughs> so how did you go about picking the versions of Spider-Man that you depicted? Did you try to get Spectacular or the 90s or the Amazing Friends version or any of the others? Well, we had a limited selection. When you work for Marvel, it's a big complicated machine. It's a division of Disney and you don't have absolute freedom because the company itself has mandates and the marketing department has mandates and the consumer products department has mandates. So we didn't have a free hand over just being able to choose anything we wanted. We were sort of guided towards certain things and we had a little bit of liberty within that, but we didn't, I think, ask about Spectacular, but that's a Sony depiction. I think there are some rights things that would have to be worked out for that to work. But we were definitely influenced by the selection that Dan Slott did in the comics. And you managed to get Chris Daniel Barnes voicing one of them, so that's a throwback in itself. Yes, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, those were really fun episodes and then brought them back in a later season as well. That was really cool. So, yeah, I'm always a good fan of these multiverse stories. And I like seeing how Spider-Man differs between different takes on him. But ultimately, he is the same guy at his core. You know, he's always the, I will help anybody that needs help, all that. Sometimes you just need to reinforce that through the various versions of him. Like even Spider-Ham has those values. Yeah, I think that Spider-Man is very well adapted as a character to the multiverse storytelling just because he's such a simple, clean, cool character that we all get and all understand. Like we've all sort of been Peter Parker at some point in our lives and we all get Peter Parker and we appreciate his optimism and his hope. So I think that that makes it particularly easy to slot him into these kinds of multidimensional stories where we see different versions of that because we know him so well inherently that seeing the differences is really interesting as opposed to other characters because technically there's a multiverse in the marvel comics continuity and there would be like versions of every marvel hero but the storytelling tends to gravitate around the idea of spider-man and i think that's the reason why yeah, there's like an annual event these days where there's a Spider-Verse take on it. And there's quite a few versions just kicking about in the comics at the moment as well. That sure. I've not read all of, but yeah, it seems to be a, a popular thing. Let's just do different takes on Spider-Man. Mm. 
it's worked out really well. I mean, I think Spider-Gwen, I think Miles Morales, I think those are exciting versions of Spider-Man. Yeah. So you're working extensively on the new Spider-Man show, Mm -hmm. which is, again, different. Seems to be focused more around teamwork and scientific discovery. So was that focus early on in its development to make sure that you did have that? Focus on science. Yes, it was. And once again, I I have to tell you, Kevin and I didn't actually develop that show. It was developed by a writer named Kevin Shinnick, who is a really interesting guy. Kevin Shinnick worked on Mad TV, the animated version of Mad Magazine. But he had also written and directed a Spider-Man show at Radio City Music Hall in New York. And he's just done some really interesting and really strange things in his career. He's writing right now a Star Wars novel. And he has previously written a feature film where Scooby-Doo met Kiss. Like, really, it's (laughs) weird. It's always strange projects and always interesting projects and things that you don't think quite go together. And he makes them go together. And he developed that show. And there was very much an idea that Peter Parker is a scientist. He is going to a special school for other scientists and that he would have a scientific approach to being a superhero. And that started with Kevin did these shorts that launched the show. And each short was a different principle of the scientific method. (laughs) That's how they themed the shorts. And it really kicked off this whole world of Horizon to everything in the new series. Yeah, it was really clever. The I'm going to test my powers using the scientific method to find out what they are. Again, it's a, it's yep. a little bit different. It's a slight shift on the familiar. When you've got so many versions of the character kicking about, you have to stand out some way, I guess. And yep. I think, yeah, I think the show definitely does that. And obviously you get to play with all the other spider characters that have cropped up now and again. Miles Morales is there. There's no universe bending shenanigans to involve him. Same with Gwen, Anya as well. So, and I mean, I don't really know what my question is here. It's just around the kind of bringing the other spider characters in. Well, I do think that that's one of the things that Kevin really hit on because these characters were becoming important to Marvel and important to audiences. And uh, Kevin Shinnick's approach was, well, we don't have to, to break the universe to have these kids meet. They're all kids and they can all go to the same school and we can just have this happen without needing to break the multiverse or have some big dire consequence. And I think that's really cool because I loved writing those Spider-Verse episodes of Ultimate Spider-Man, but the characters don't get much time together. In Ultimate Spider-Man season four, we had to do a major special event just so we could get Miles in for a few episode run so that Peter and Miles could spend some time together. And Shinnick's development was just, look, uh, we don't need all that. They go to the same school. And then that way you can have them being kids and hanging out and going to class and doing things that our audience will recognize as being things kids do. And I wish I could claim that as my idea. I can't, but he did a great job. And there's other Avengers kicking about as well. You've got Kamala Khan, for example. It's definitely one of the early adaptations of her. I'm not sure where she showed up first, but uh, certainly an animated form. Yeah, well, we were fans of those comics. I think her first few issues were just such a refreshing, cool new character. And in our minds, she very much was like Peter. She had to deal with her secret identity because she lived at home as a student, but had to also be a superhero. And those early issues, she 
was always late for things because superhero stuff got in the way of her personal life, which was very Peter Parker. And she had a friend she desperately wanted to tell but couldn't tell, which was all very Peter Parker. And we just thought that the parallels between those characters, what G. Willow Wilson was doing with those characters in comics, just made it seem like they would be instant friends once they got to know each other. So we orchestrated a way for them to, to sort of meet and not get along at first, which is the traditional Marvel way for team-ups, <laughs> and then kind of become close. So, yeah, we liked that. We were glad we got to play with that. Does Dan Slot have a lot of involvement in the show, or did he kind of get in there early on and then leave it to its own devices? I know a lot of his ideas are used. Spider Island, Superior Spider-Man, which is going on at the moment. Mm-hmm. Well, Dan's presence is felt basically every time we meet. But no, he flew in from New York and had the story conference with us. He's been on Skype in story sessions and we get emails and notes. And he's been an active force in the show. He's never the kind of guy who says, stop, don't do that. He is in no way protective of absolutely anything. We've used ideas of his in extremely different ways We've ended them differently, and we've started them differently, and we've taken inspiration from them and not used whole things. And he has always been so super cool and super supportive, and he's always said to us, you've got to make it your own, like do anything you want. And he's there to to give us ideas and things like that, but uh, he's never an invasive or a negative force in any way. It's always great to get notes from him. Cool. He seems to have his head screwed on. I like a lot of his stories. In fact, I got back into the Spider-Man comics because of him. I kind of moved away from them until he put some new life into it. So seeing he has some story input is interesting. Yeah, well, I agree completely. He really refreshed the line and had a just a fantastic run. And his work on Silver Surfer was great as well, the Doctor Who type Silver more. Surfer run. Yeah, the totally Doctor Who take on Silver Surfer it was yeah. fantastic. And so season three, the direction's changing to Maximum Venom. It was a bit of a surprise to see that. I mean, I remember the Living Brain episode and then heard nothing for ages. I would Google the show every now and again just to see if there was any news and it seemed to have dropped off the face of the earth. So, I mean, can you talk about the change in direction and why that is? Or is it kind of a hush-hush Disney thing? There was no creative change in direction. We made season two all together and we deliver season two and then it's up to the network how they're going to schedule. And typically they schedule some kind of a break mid-season, like some kind of a mid-season hiatus is sort of routine, but they don't consult with us about scheduling issues at all. Like usually we wait for the listings to come out and we thought it would be a normal mid-season break and then it sort of stretched on and on and on <laughs> we were surprised as viewers that there was such a long break between the seasons it's almost like it was a, a whole separate season but there was no creative element in that we got a 26 episode order and we fulfilled the 26 episode order and then they air them how they air them so you're involved in the maximum venom side of it that they're doing next season whenever that appears Yes, that's right. So any hints of what to expect? I wouldn't expect you to sort of give us all the exclusives, but... (laughs) Well, I'm on on a pretty big lockdown about that. So we did a little panel at D23 that teased it, but uh, there's not too much I can really say about it, except that it is very Venom, lots of Venom, and that it's starting, the network has told us, in spring. So there will be a shorter gap between the end of season two and the beginning of season three than there was between the middle of season two cool i'm getting a bit of a web of shadows vibe from the tease that i've seen the one where venom takes over the city and Uh, yeah if you like web of shadows there will be things you like in season three 
Cool. That's the best tease we can expect. So we'll <laughs> see how it appears in the spring. I'll certainly be watching. So, Thank um, you. Transformers Rescue Bots Academy. Are you a big Transformers fan? And obviously you're playing around with something that has so many iterations. You teased that with Turtles a bit earlier, where so many different versions of this. Where do you even start when it comes to that sort of idea? Well, yes, Kevin and I are executive producers on Transformers Rescue Bots Academy and very proud of the show. It was one of the things where we sort of came in to do, we worked on the first season because there was a departing showrunner and then carried over our work into season two. The end of season one is airing right now in the US and uh, season two will be next year. I don't think that they've picked the premiere date yet. But I am, yes, a big Transformers fan from when it was first on air. Full Gen 1. Yeah, I've I've boxed my G1 Transformers at my mom's house. <laughs> I mean, I haven't seen Rescue Bots Academy, but how do you start with adapting something, trying to update it, or maybe just change it? I don't know if updating it's always the right word. I think it's thrown around too often, but sometimes it can just be about changing yeah, it Yeah, I mean, this isn't much of an update. Transformers Rescue Bots Academy is a preschool show, so it's the very youngest of audience members. I mean, it's appropriate for children as young as three. And Rescue Bots Academy follows on from a, an earlier show called Transformers Rescue Bots, but it's an 11-minute preschool show, and there really are no Decepticons. It's about a group of Autobots who train to be rescue vehicles on Earth, and there are a lot of sort of preschool messaging about teamwork and getting along and sharing and that kind of stuff. So it's very much a show to introduce the youngest viewers to the world of Transformers and get them ready to join the larger fandom for Transformers as they grow a little older. And when it comes to writing preschool shows versus shows for older viewers, how does your approach change as a writer when it comes to crafting those types of stories? Well, I have good fortune in that we wrote our first preschool show, which is a show called Octonauts, while my oldest was a preschooler and was a fan of preschool television, so I was watching a lot of it. And so writing preschool, I think, was an easier conversion to writing from older audiences to writing for preschool because... I could just envision writing for my own son, for my own three-year-old, and what he would want to see and what he could understand and how I would speak to him. Often as a parent, you have to explain complicated ideas like bullying and why people are mean and why there's evil in the world. And you have to find ways to reduce that to a level that a three-year-old can really grasp based on their vocabulary and based on their conceptual understanding. And that's something that all parents everywhere have to do. And I was having to do that at the same time that we were having to write for younger audiences for the first time. And so it really got me into the right mindset. And I, I'm proud of those Octonauts episodes we wrote. I hope they read well for three-year-olds. Yeah, so it's not so much about dumbing down your writing. It's about just tailoring it for the right voice. Well, yeah, I mean, you have to be careful because the truth is that kids know when they're being talked down to, except for the very, very youngest of kids, one-year-olds and two-year-olds. When you put on a little kid voice to talk to a little kid, they know that you're doing baby talk. And in my experience, kids can feel condescension pretty clearly. Mm -hmm. So you do have to explain things to them in ways they understand and have the conceptual ability to, to grasp, but you can't be actively talking down to them or treating them like they are stupid because they're not stupid. They're just young and they know when you're treating them like they're stupid and they don't like it. 
I think there are whole shows that just treat kids like they're stupid. And uh, I think that those are the shows that kids don't gravitate toward. Yeah, if, if you write a stupid show, they'll just go off and do something else while it's on. Yeah, true. Yeah, fair enough. So, Star Wars Resistance. I'm guessing you're probably a fairly decent Star Wars fan. Oh, absolutely. So, it must have been great to get to play around in the new time period. I mean, it's a little bit before The Force Awakens, but still, it's that kind of era, and you get to play around with characters like Poe Dameron, who's completely yeah. new. And... Yeah, and General Organa was in the first episode. Yeah, absolutely. The idea that the new trilogy is happening now... Like, it's not even complete yet in theaters, but that we're getting to tell stories around that, those same events, is phenomenal. Gosh. I don't want to spoil the end of season one for people who maybe haven't seen the end of season one, because season two hasn't even premiered yet. But events from the movies are felt in the show in a really interesting way. Do you have a lot of notes on what you can't touch because the films might dive into it, or is it relatively free? Yeah, so on that show, we're freelancers. We don't run that show, and we're not producers on that show. So a lot of the scenarios that we wind up exploring in the writer's room come down to us. Like, we haven't generated them. But the showrunners, people like Brandon Allman and Justin Ridge, and people who are sort of above us on the chain creatively, definitely interface directly with, you know, they have a great story department there that handles all the stories. And so the showrunners of Resistance have read the scripts for movies or versions of the scripts, drafts of the scripts. They see early cuts of the movies. They speak with people like Pablo Hidalgo and the other sort of what they call keepers of the holocron over at Lucasfilm to make sure that story continuity is across the board shaped up and that this universe really tracks. So yeah, Dave Filoni is not going to let those stories not couple with the rest of the universe. And he's going to make sure it's, it's a great shared experience. Yeah. And not being allowed to have Jedi kicking about as well must be A bit of a challenge, certainly for mainstream Star Wars these days. Well, I mean, I guess it's a challenge to do a show that doesn't have much force in it, but that's necessitated by the concept of, obviously everyone's seen these movies and they know that the force is only just awakening in this continuity. And so that's just part of making a show in the continuity of the current trilogy of movies is that there's only so much Jedi in the universe and uh, you can't break from the continuity of the movie if you want to be in the continuity of the movie. Yeah, plus it's something a bit different that you don't see an awful lot of as well. So Absolutely true. Appeal. Yeah, a focus on the pilots of the Star Wars universe. Yeah. That's really interesting and cool. Yeah, the real heroes, some would say. Mm. Stretch Armstrong, it's one of the more interesting animated shows I've seen in recent years. I spoke to Victor Cook about this when I interviewed him, and he was just talking about how make a show about this toy has no backstory, has nothing. It's just a toy that people had. (laughs) That must have been amazing to have that freedom to just build that from nothing and make something around it. Yeah, absolutely right. I mean, we would talk to people and they'd be surprised. Everyone sort of assumed that Stretch Armstrong must have had some cartoon at some point that they hadn't seen or something, you know? That's what I thought when I asked Victor about it and he was like, nope. Nothing, just a toy. <laughs> yeah, there were a couple of commercials in the 90s, but no actual story content. Yeah, it was completely free and uh, it was a wonderful experience. And working with Vic was a great experience. But we could just sit down and say, what would it mean to have these powers? And we got to make it a teen thing and make it a sort of teen superhero stuff, which 
kind of sunk up with our Spider-Man experience, and we got to invent sort of a sciency world and a, a near future world, and so thankful we got to do that. Yeah, I was going to say it is comparable to the current Spider-Man with the science team and the resources they have and things like that. Well, Kevin and I are big science fiction fans, and that's going to come out in our superhero stuff. Yeah, is there any plans for a third season? Um, season two leads things. I have made so many plans for a third season. You have <laughs> no idea, but they're all plans in our heads right now. It's all up to Netflix whether there's a third season or not, and we haven't heard anything. We haven't heard any cancellations, but we also haven't gotten an order for new season. So we'll wait and see. I do hope it gets picked up because I think it's one of the shows that can transcend on various audiences. I think. Almost anybody could watch it and, and get something out of it because there is so much going on. Well, thank you. I hope that's true. As we're all building something you've had a lot of experience with, how do you kind of approach starting from scratch in effect? Well, we approached it just in terms of sitting down and having just a big brainstorm. And just, you know, Kevin and I, I have the pleasure of working with a writing partner and he and I can just have instant writer's rooms wherever we are and brainstorm big ideas. And then, of course, we developed it with Vic and we bounce everything off Vic and then he'd come back and he'd have a whole new idea. Like we'd build out Charter City, which is the location, and then Vic would come back and he'd have mapped it. And it's like, oh, here's a map of Charter City or something like Charter City is supposed to be the city of tomorrow today. It's our sort of inspiration was it's an American Singapore. It is like clean and beautiful and it's sort of purpose built by a tech genius, but it was built over an older existing city. And we told that to Vic and Vic sort of came back. Back and he had like a layout of the city. And in the city, he had this old town, sort of part of the city that hadn't been re-energized and reinvigorated or not gentrified, so to speak. And that hadn't occurred to us until Vic brought it in. And then we wound up architecting a bunch of stories around the idea of Old Town. Like, not just that the buildings hadn't been updated or renovated, but maybe that's where sort of the last vestiges of some old world sort of gangster villains wind up gravitating toward that. The sort of bad guys who don't want things to change wind up there and things like that. So we wound up having whole stories just inspired by this one map that Vic made. So it was a wonderful experience. And suddenly you have the whole concept of class differences in, in your sci-fi world, which, of course, everybody can relate to on some level. Yeah, I think that the idea that science fiction addresses the issue of social strata is something that dates back to the earliest science fiction. I mean, I think that's what Metropolis is largely about, yeah. one of the first and best science fiction films. And even in literature and in television, I mean, some of the best Star Trek episodes dealt with class and dealt with social structures. And, you know, science fiction can be a great way to approach stuff like that because it extracts some of the more politically charged elements, but it's able to talk about things conceptually. So science fiction is good for that kind of stuff. And of course, with the Star Trek connection, you get Will Wheaton as one of your principal yeah. characters, which was a great performance from him, I thought, doing that voice. Yeah, what happened was we were casting, before the Ready Player One movie came out, I was listening to the Ready Player One audiobook. And the audiobook was read by Will Wheaton. And we were, at the time, in the process of casting, the just sort of early process of casting for Stretch. And I'd drive into the studio every morning listening to Will Wheaton's voice. And <laughs> it was like Rook was talking to me. 
Jonathan Rook was reading me Ready Player One every morning on the way to the studio. And I would just get to the studio and say, we got to get Will Wheaton. we got to get Will Wheaton. <laughs> How can we get Will Wheaton? Every morning that was reinforced until the book was over. It's not that long of a book. Yeah. But for like the week that I was driving in, listening to it, that's what stuck. And fortunately, we got him. And plenty of the old Gargoyles cast as well in the show. That's true. Vic worked with Greg Weissman on Spectacular Spider-Man, and they share a Rolodex, and they share a lot of friends. And so a lot of Greg's sort of regulars are also good friends of Vic's, and he was able to bring them in. I thought it was interesting about the mystery character. Everyone would have assumed, or lots of people would have assumed, it was a man under the mask or, a, mm-hmm. I guess, a teenager, teenage boy under the yeah. mask, and then revealed to be a female. So that was a really good mystery that kind of prevailed throughout the was it just the first season and revealed at yeah, the end? Yeah, just the yeah. first season. Yeah. Yeah, we liked the idea of challenging assumptions with that. We yeah, liked the idea that these three teenage boys thought, thought had never even occurred to them. <laughs> yeah. and, and it was an interesting reveal. And then you got to do some really cool stuff with her in the second season as well in that identity. So I think you should be very proud of what you accomplished with Stretch. It's, it's certainly one of the most original things out there, especially in a world where everything's being adapted from something. I mean, it is adapted from something, but it's also adapted from nothing, which is interesting in itself. You know, that's pretty unique on that side of things. Thank you very much. I really appreciate everything you're saying. My pleasure. And you wrote the lyrics to the theme tune, according to IMDb. We did. Well, Big Kevin and I all did, yeah. Do you like writing songs? Was that a first for you, or is it something that you do a lot of? It's something that Kevin is a musician. He's, uh, you know a little bit more well adapted to it but uh, no it's something that we've had to do on occasion just because of the nature of the shows like we wound up writing a little jig for mikey and an episode or Teenage Ninja Turtles, and we've written at the when the octonauts airs in the u.s they have something called the creature report at the end i understand they don't air it this way in the uk but in the u.s all the octonauts actually just captain barnacles mostly sings this song about the creature that they met in that episode and so every octonauts scriptwriter also winds up writing lyrics for a preschool children's tune about sea life which is <laughs> something you never really think you're going to do when you're in college but eventually is something you do so we've had to write lyrics for things from time to time we chose to write the lyrics for the theme tune for stretch because we felt that it was going to be tonally important And we wanted to have control over that tone. A lot of the shows that we did for Marvel were sort of influenced by Lost that Jeff Loeb worked on, where they would have basically no opening credit. You know, the opening credits of Avengers Assemble were just the words Avengers Assemble with some lights kind of moving around them. And it's like three seconds long. And there was some sort of retro stuff that we were doing with Stretch. And we wanted to get back to, like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, those opening credit sequences that set up the characters. And, you know, a good long 30-second sequence where you got to see the cast and, you know, so we wanted to return to that. That was something Netflix isn't crazy about, by the way. They love binge viewing and they feel that longer opening credit sequences actually are obstacles to binging. You know, you're watching a a show and it might just auto load the next episode and you're starting to watch the next episode and then you get credits. That might be an obstacle. So, you know, you have an option of clicking past the opening titles and things like that on Netflix, at least in the US. I'm not sure what the interface is like in other places, but uh, skip intro. You can have the skip intro. Yeah. 
So Netflix was sort of encouraging us to not do it. But we felt like it was important to hold sort of quasi retro vibe of the show to have one of those. And so we fought for it and they let us do it. And so that's how we came to write it. Cool. I definitely hope there'll be a season three. would definitely love to see that story progress. You and me both. Well, let's, let's hope for one. So Ninjago seems to be the most recent thing you've been working on. A bit of Lego. There was obviously a Ninjago movie that I've seen. Again, Lego is one of those things that you're applying a story to something that doesn't necessarily really have one. Obviously, there's a slight backstory as in it's ninjas that you build. But was there any crossovers with Stretch in terms of how you approach giving a story to something that doesn't have one? Well, no, I would almost say that it's the, almost the opposite. The truth is that when the Lego guys develop sets, they spend a lot of time thinking about the set and what it means. And they do a lot of playtesting. And if you look really at any given Lego set of any line, not just talking about Ninjago, but just pick up a Lego set and look at the box and what it contains, you'll find that every Lego set is a story. They have characters in them and the characters have certain props and the certain props interact with whatever building or vehicle you're building in it and they'll have a lot of sets with their superhero sets that will have a villain and a hero the idea that they're putting characters at odds against each other in the set they're creating drama by the nature of the set you're building so honestly i feel like lego sets are a form of storytelling a form of interactive storytelling that gives you the tools to tell the story so really that's not the same process at all as with stretch because with stretch it really was blue sky you stare at a blank ceiling and think of ideas of stories you want to tell and with lego anything you do for lego look at the products there's a story in that box Mm -hmm. what's the best way to guide that story so very different it's literally all built for you almost to use a Lego pun. Oh, <laughs> well, yeah. Writing for Lego is sort of like the experience of building Lego, yeah. which is there are a bunch of pieces. What order am I going to put them in? Cool. That's a great little soundbite in terms of the basic approach. Cool. <laughs> so what are you plan to work on next or what's in the pipeline for you in terms of other animated well, shows or anything else? Well, the two things I'm most excited about are starting October 6th in the U.S., a show that Kevin and I have spent a lot of time on is finally dropping in the U.S. The show is called Super Dinosaur, and this show is based on a comic book by Robert Kirkman of Walking Dead fame and the artist Jason Howard. And the two of them made this book. Basically, they wanted to do a comic book that their kids would love, and they made this sort of all-ages comic called Super Dinosaur. Very different in tone from Walking Dead, but with all the sort of dynamic, fun storytelling you would expect from these guys. And the book's fantastic, and we got to develop it as a series. So Kevin and I worked on that. We executive produced 26 episodes of that show. The animation is done by a company called Atomic Cartoons in Vancouver. It was a production of Robert Kirkman's company Skybound with a great executive named Catherine Winder from Star Wars Clone Wars and other things, and who is now running the animation division at Skybound, and the toy company Spin Master, Canadian toy company, was the other partner. And the show is 
absolutely so much fun. It's about a boy and his best friend, but his best friend happens to be a dinosaur, a T-Rex that was cloned by his scientist father. And the T-Rex has these little bitty T-Rex arms, but in order to go on these missions and adventures, they give him a little device. He has two giant robotic arms sitting on his shoulders, and his little T-Rex arms operate these joysticks on a belt around his waist that (laughs) make the big arms move. It's visually very funny and very clever. And so that show is the first 12 episodes are going to be on Amazon Prime in the U.S. October 6th. And uh, they are playing in other places across the world as we speak on various territories and various networks. But I understand Amazon's going to carry them in a lot of other places, too. So yeah, I see uh, it's already aired in, the, in Canada. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Teletoon was another partner uh, of the show. There were a lot of pieces in putting the show together, and Teletoon was another partner. And so Teletoon, for being a partner of the show, they got the world premiere rights on the Canadian broadcast system, Teletoon. So that aired there. It finished its run at Teletoon this year, and now it's going be in the U.S. and already is in other places like New Zealand and Australia and other places. Cool. Israel. So, one to look out for then. Yeah. I'm excited about that. Also, I have a graphic novel that Speak, is Speaking of dinosaurs. Second. <laughs> yes. Also about dinosaurs. Yeah. It's called Alien Bones. And it's an all-ages graphic novel that is being released October 2nd. And you can get it in the U.S. on Amazon.com or by going to your favorite local comic book store and asking about it through Diamond Distributors. Or you can get it in the UK either on Amazon or through ForbiddenPlanet.com. And this is a book about a kid who's a 10-year-old who travels with his father. And his father is a xenopaleontologist who studies the bones of alien dinosaurs. So they travel around the cosmos doing fossil digs on alien planets. And Liam loves this. Liam's the main character, and he thinks he has this perfect adventurous life. And then one day he's on an alien planet, there's no other people, and his father goes missing. And his father's GPS signal isn't even on the planet. Like, his father's gone. And so it's about this boy who has to, with his best friend, and he has a sort of nanny robot named Standard 5, and he has a little pet dinosaur that's about the size of a chicken named Squigglesworth. And they sort of go on this adventure across the cosmos to try to track down his father, whose disappearance may be connected to these ancient alien artifacts. And it all sort of leads in a conspiracy that may affect the entire human race. So that book is called Alien Bones, and the art is by a guy named Chris Grine, who's absolutely fantastic. And I hope everyone will check it out. Cool. Is it on Comixology as well, or any of the kind of digital platforms? It's not. I understand from my publisher that their intention is to release it digitally at a future date. Right now, it's just in print. Physical copy. Yeah, physical copies. Cool. And it's a beautiful hardcover. It looks great on the shelf. Cool. I would be very interested in reading that. I was reading up on it when you reached out to me for this interview, so it's something that I'll definitely have a look out for. I do go into Forbidden Planet from time to time, so I'll see if I can get a hold of it from there. Awesome. It sounds great. Are you hoping for an animated adaptation of it one of these days? or? Well, I absolutely think it would make a ripping animated series, but it's not something I'm working on right now. But I think, yeah, it's definitely something I would explore. Cool. Well, that sounds great. So that's... At the time of recording, it's out in like three days. That's right. They're sending me to New York Comic Con to promote it this week. I'm getting on a plane in two days. 
Oh, that'd be awesome. Actual comics at New York Comic Con. That'll be a novelty. <laughs> <laughs> so I've, I've made my way through all the notes I had on, on things to ask you about. So is there anything else you want to say about your graphic novel other than obviously buy it? I'd love for people to check it out. And if they enjoy it, I'd love for them to reach out to me on Twitter or, or review on Amazon.com or ForbiddenPlanet.com and let me know what they thought. And I will put your Twitter handle in the show notes. But if you just want to tell everybody what it is. I'm at Otherland71. The Lance of one. Okay. So, yeah, check them out there. So, last question, standard question. If you could have any superpower, what would it be and why? It would be teleportation up to and including interstellar teleportation. Nice. So, you can go to Mars, you can go to Saturn, yeah. go anywhere. Uh, yeah, I'd like to explore. Yeah. That's um, get off the planet. Well, arguably, it's a good thing to be getting off the planet these days <laughs> in this current climate. It's something I hope we all will do. That's a great one. I don't think I've had that one before in my series of interviews, so something original. Oh, well, good. So thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us, talk to me as, as a website entity, and I really hope that people respond to your graphic novel and read it and enjoy it, and obviously continue to watch the wealth of TV shows that you write, animated shows. I think you do really good work, and it deserves to be recognised. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you having me on the show. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, a pleasure for me too. Just, Have a uh, great day. You too. So that was my chat with Chris Doc Wyatt. I'd like to thank him for his time and wish him all the best in the future. If you like what you heard, then hit that subscribe button on iTunes, Spotify, or any major podcasting app. You can also reach us on Facebook or Twitter under Neil Before Blog, or leave a comment on neilbeforeblog.co.uk. As always, we hope you'll join us on the next Neil Before Pod. Mm-hmm.